Hey everyone and welcome to the year once the podcast all about today that gives you just enough information to effectively be that guy at the party causing all your friends to question, hey, who invited you? Like, seriously, why are you here? I'm your host Michael Montalvo and for the next few minutes we will swim through the river of time to try and find out what makes today truly unique. In this episode we examine the events that occurred September 29. When you don't feel well, you take medicine. At least most people do. And when you take medicine, you expect to either feel better, to get better, or at the very least, to let the placebo effect take over and let your mind make you better. And really, when you look at it, all of those scenarios involve you getting better, so I really didn't have to list all of them. I could have just said, the goal of medicine is to make you better. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I am padding out this document in order to meet my page requirement. Yes, I do have a page requirement, and I do write these out, but that's not important right now. Sometime on the morning before the 29th of September, Mary Kellerman's parents, I assume, had gone to the pharmacy or a store located in the Chicago area. While doing their shopping, they grabbed a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol, and after purchasing took it home. Going forward to the 29th, Mary, who was 12 at the time, woke and told her parents that she felt sick. She complained of a sore throat and had a runny nose and was given a capsule of the pain reliever in order to relieve some of the symptoms. At approximately 7 a.m., she was found unconscious and was rushed to the hospital, where she was pronounced dead at 9.30 a.m. The initial cause of death was believed to be a stroke, but it was soon discovered to be something much worse. The year was 1982, and on this day, September 29th, the Tylenol murders began in the Chicago area in the United States. What were the Tylenol murders, and who did it? I hear you ask me, and we will get to that shortly. As for what they were, the Tylenol murders were a series of poisonings that resulted in the deaths of seven people. What is believed to have happened is that the killer, who has never spoken about it, walked into one or more stores and bought multiple bottles of extra-strength Tylenol, an over-the-counter drug meaning you can buy it without a prescription. They then took the bottles home and injected potassium cyanide into the red half of each capsule. I don't know if it made a difference which side it was injected into, but the articles I found specified the red side. The capsules were then put back into the bottles, and then the bottles were taken to six stores where they were put back onto the shelf to be purchased by unsuspecting people. But medicine bottles have tamper-proof seals, you tell me. How did they not notice they had been tampered with? Well, that's true of medicine nowadays. But they didn't always have these seals on them. These seals were actually a direct result from this incident. In the aftermath of these deaths, McNeil Consumer Products, a division of Johnson & Johnson, issued a recall and warned people about the deadly Tylenol that potentially was in their home. They quickly worked to shut down production and find a solution, the tamper-proof bottle. In fact, only six weeks after the murders were reported, you could find this new and improved Tylenol back on the shelves. So, how did they find out it was the Tylenol? In addition to Mary Kellerman, on the morning of the 29th, Adam Janus took off from work and purchased a bottle. 
After taking a few of the capsules, he collapsed and was taken to the hospital where he died shortly after. The Janus family story doesn't end there, however. At a family gathering to mourn Adam's loss, two more members of the Janus family, Stanley and his wife Teresa, both took the Tylenol after complaining about headaches. Stanley died later that day, and Teresa died two days later. Over the course of a few days, in addition to those already mentioned, Mary McFarland, Paula Prince, and Mary Reiner would all become victims of this poisoning. The first thought was that it was carbon monoxide, especially considering that three members of the same family, the Janus's, had died in similar circumstances. But two firefighters speculated that it may have had something to do with the Tylenol, and after it was confirmed that the Janus family and Kellerman had taken Tylenol, the bottles were located and opened to be investigated. Inside the bottles, they smelled like almonds, and this indicated cyanide. The four were tested, and results came back positive for cyanide. As for the capsules themselves, some were immaculate while others were obviously tampered with. Some bottles had more than the specified quantity, some had less, but after testing, it was discovered that all had a lethal dose of cyanide in them. So who did it? Do you remember when I said that the culprit has never spoken about it? That's because we don't know who did it. There are suspects, of course, but as far as stores go, they just don't tend to look for people who are putting things onto the shelf, only the ones trying to take things from the shelf. And video surveillance just wasn't really a thing yet, at least not a common one, not the norm. We don't know why they did it, or who did it, but some believe that it was an employee of Johnson & Johnson. All of the bottles had the same control number, and that leads some credibility to this, although Johnson and Johnson have denied it. There are suspects ranging from the obligatory unknown woman claiming to be someone else, like the babushka woman in the Kennedy assassination, Roger Arnold, who would suffer a nervous breakdown after the attention of being named a suspect, Lori Dan, who went on her own spree of poisoning and murder in 1988, and even the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. And then there is James Williams Lewis. After the investigation into the murders began, Johnson & Johnson received a letter from Lewis where he claimed to be the one responsible and stated that if they wanted the murders to stop, they would need to pay him $1 million. A manhunt began, and in late October, he sent another letter denying any involvement. On December 13th, the police found him in New York, where he continued to proclaim his innocence. However, handwriting analysis confirmed that it was him, and they even found one of his fingerprints on the letter itself. The only thing was that he had been in New York City at the time of the attacks, and police couldn't disprove that. In the Department of Justice files from the investigation, they concluded that he was likely the one responsible, but that they had a lack of any concrete evidence to secure a conviction. He was eventually removed from the list of suspects, and he continues to deny any involvement. Lewis was, however, charged with extortion and sentenced to 20 years in prison, but only served 13. With any case like this, of course, there would be copycats in the following years. 
Sue Snow died June 11, 1986, from tampered Excedrin capsules. Bruce Nickel was also killed, leaving his wife, Stella Nickel, a widow. Excedrin was pulled from the shelves, and it was discovered that of the five bottles that were poisoned, Nickel had somehow purchased two of them, each from separate stores. And this caused some alarm bells to go off. It was eventually determined that she had murdered her husband for the increased payout for accidental death that their insurance offered. She was charged with the murder of Sue Snow and Bruce Nichols and sentenced to 99 years in prison. This is a crazy story and would really seem like something you would only find in a movie or a show. But as deadly as this event was, we have to remember that numerous safety measures have been put into place to ensure that this doesn't happen again. In 1983, the Tylenol Bill was passed by Congress that made malicious tampering a federal offense. In 1989, the FDA set national requirements for all over-the-counter products to be tamper-resistant. I think one of the most interesting things about all of this and kind of the one that, that hits you the most was a quote from Stephen Fink on Gizmodo that I feel kind of sums up the whole crisis that the nation faced. Fink says, Whatever innocence we still had in the summer of 1982 was quickly shattered by the fall. It's just something to think about. That's going to do it for us today. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, give us a rate and a review. That helps me out and helps you this in a direction that is hopefully good for all. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can find the Year Was audio version on your podcast app of choice. You can find me on social media and at YouTube at the Apple Cider Club. And as always, I want to thank the Tim Kreitz Band for our musical theme. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. 